is the main event. What you gonna do? If you're some man, best there is, best there was, best there ever will be. Woo! Yeah! Ooh, yeah. I am the game. Costoco said so. Oh my god! What I'd like to have right now. Rest in peace, Waterrush. To be the man, you gotta beat the man. Are you ready? Everyone has a price. Yeah, I've come here to fight. Standing ovation here. Let's go to our ring announcer. Introducing your old school pro wrestling nostalgia podcast, Beyond the Bell. They put Kevin Nash in the Hall of Fame, and a lot of people were wondering if it was going to be Kevin Nash who went in or it was going to be Diesel. I really don't see anything that's different between the two because without Diesel, there is no Kevin Nash because, as he said, there is no NWO. I've been blessed, and there's a lot of the guys out here that, that I've worked with. I've been blessed with some of the best workers in the world to go out and, and perform on a nightly basis. And I've never said I was a great dancer, but I can definitely follow somebody that can dance. So uh, to you out there that have uh, been in the ring with me, I appreciate your uh, due diligence your patience, and your ability to occasionally kick me in the keister to get me to work. Our DeLorean is running on diesel power. Welcome to your home for all things nostalgia in the world of professional wrestling. This is Beyond the Bell, powered not just by diesel power, but by the SNS Radio Network. I'm your old school host, Sean Backerman, back with you to go retro as we continue on covering the 2015 class of the WWE Hall of Fame. And this week we get a little cool as we cover Big Daddy Cool, Big Sexy. The monikers go on and on. We relive the career of Kevin Nash. This is part one of our three-part series covering the historic career and the eventful career of Kevin Nash. Now, I know what some of you may be saying is how come the Macho Man Randy Savage gets a two-part edition, but Kevin Nash gets three? Well, if you go back into the archives, we've already had two separate shows, if not more, covering the Macho Man Randy Savage. Two that come to mind is, of course, the first show after his passing, early on in the infancy stages of Beyond the Bell, where we remembered Randy Savage and his career. We focused in a very broad scope of his career and we recalled some memories as it was so fresh and so shocking at the time, a couple, uh, just a few years ago, losing the Macho Man Randy Savage. 
plus Macho Mania during WrestleMania season, during the previous WrestleMania month theme, now WrestleMania Rush, as we now call it on BTB. We cover Macho Mania, the historic feuds of the Macho Man Randy Savage during WrestleMania, plus we cover the Macho Man's feuds in Epic Encounters, Famous Feuds, as well as during the Hulkamania Chronicles, as one edition focused on the Mega Powers exploding. So if you count all those shows, plus the two Hall of Fame editions, we've had numerous 5-plus, 6-plus, 7-plus, you count it, almost a dozen, if you count all the other times we described the Macho Man's career, feuds, his rivalries, famous promos, all-time greatest interviews, catchphrases, you name it. We covered it with the Macho Man Randy Savage, and I'm excited to bring you the final part, part two of the Macho Man's career next week on Beyond the Bell. But we look now, we look ahead to Diesel Power and Kevin Nash. Looking back at it, when I archived and I compiled all my notes on Kevin, it was shocking to see, yes, I could do a three-parter on Big Sexy. And you think, Kevin Nash, a three-parter? Really? It's surprising. Well, it's surprising when you initially think about it, but when you go through his career, it's not so surprising because he's done so much in his career. He's gone and performed in so many other organizations outside of the well-known, of course, Big Daddy Cool Diesel that made him in the World Wrestling Federation, the WCW, previously in WCW before even entering the Federation when it was part of the NWA the numerous gimmicks he's had going over to TNA and the independent circuit plus his movie roles he's done a lot and he's been involved in a lot of moments storylines factions controversial moments he's done so much being a booker a wrestler a bodyguard now an actor hall of famer Nash has done so much in his career that I want to do it justice and cover every aspect of his life in the industry and even outside the industry as he transcended professional wrestling, not to the extent of The Rock, you know, or Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan is an icon of professional wrestling. The Rock is just an entertainment icon. But Nash laid a nice, a nice spot for himself in the sports and entertainment categories. So there's so much to discuss about Nash. His gimmicks alone can create a three-part edition. But tonight, part one, we cover from the Master Blaster to Oz, Vinny Vegas, on to being diesel-powered, big daddy cool in the World Wrestling Federation. We cover his early days through his WWF Championship victory over Bob Backlund, which I was lucky enough to witness surprisingly in person. I'll cover that tonight and my memories of watching that live in Madison Square Garden. We rounded off there as he culminates his World Wrestling Federation career at WrestleMania 12 and then closes the book on Diesel to open up a new chapter, which will be part two as Kevin Nash turns into an outsider returning to World Championship Wrestling. And then part three will discuss, of course, his return to the World Wrestling Federation, now WWE, and then entering TNA, coming back to the Federation, or now the E, as they call it, and then the movie roles and so forth. So that's the scope of the three-part edition for Kevin Nash 
coming up in the next few weeks on Beyond the Bell. In between will be the Macho Man Randy Savages Part 2. So much more to discuss. And at the end of our show, I'll make an announcement of a special theme month that you fans have been asking for coming up on BTB as we roll into the spring, into the summertime, getting pumped for SummerSlam as Beyond the Bell will be on hand in Brooklyn, New York to take you through SummerSlam 2015. I also want to discuss my WrestleMania weekend and the experiences I had in Santa Clara enjoying a great show, witnessing WrestleMania 31, WrestleMania play button in person throughout all the festivities. I think I'll discuss that on a separate show in the coming weeks. So much to get through, so much to present to you. I know we're a little bit behind in capping off our Hall of Fame edition. Last year, we put off the last two inductees to this year as we just relived and archived Scott Hall's legendary career. But speaking of fellow Click member Scott Hall, Kevin Ash coming up tonight on Beyond the Bell. We cover the cool and memorable career of one of the most charismatic big men in professional wrestling. After this quick break, we take you back to the beginning and where it all started for a former basketball player eventually turning his dream of becoming a professional athlete to becoming a professional wrestler. Don't go anywhere. Find out how he became Big Daddy Cool after this brief timeout. Old school fans, the battle lines have been drawn. Beyond the Bell presents the Monday Night War, the rivalry between WWF Monday Night Raw and WCW Monday Nitro. This five-part series takes you through the history of the Monday Night War from the inaugural battle to the historic simulcast. This edition covers it all. Relive the greatest moments and superstars of the war. So buckle up and prepare for war on Beyond the Bell as we present the Monday Night War. Exclusively on the SNS Radio Network and btbcast.com. Every week was a battle. Using unparalleled power and brute force. As Diesel, Kevin Nash was Shawn Michaels' invincible wall of protection. This is a Mack truck, and this man protects Shawn Michaels. Seven feet, 300 plus pounds. Nothing can slow this man down. Never before had a big man owned the provocative swagger of Big Daddy Cool. He was sexy. All the ladies wanted to be with the big guy. Everybody wanted to be like Kevin Nash. He was the coolest. Sunglasses on indoors, fringe on his leather pants. His hair, the way he walked, he was just the epitome of a cool guy. With Diesel's commanding look and an attitude to match, it was clear that Diesel was fueled for greatness. Diesel wins tag team titles, the Intercontinental title and the World Heavyweight title. That was the Triple Crown, and here comes Diesel, and he does it in one year, and he does it in his rookie year. Bell rings a boot to the midsection. Backlund spin right over. Backjack, back left. Backlund down to the canvas. Big Daddy Cool Diesel for the count. Yes, there you have it. That's it. Diesel wins the 
winning the title from Bob Backlund in a record-setting eight seconds. Diesel was the longest-running WWE champion in the 1990s. Nobody touches Diesel. Nobody touches the champion. While still dominating the competition in WWE, Kevin Nash pulled back the sports entertainment curtain once and for all. Nash stunned the world by appearing on WCW-TV unannounced. Teaming up with Scott Hall, the two implied they were still part of WWE. Wait a minute, what the hell but what? When Hall and Nash jumped ship, it was such a shocker. Nitro needed some fresh faces. Scott Hall and Kevin Nash made a big impact. This is where the big boys play, huh? We ain't here to play. We are at war. I think they can do whatever they want. As the outsiders, Hall and Nash took over WCW. And when Hulk Hogan joined in, they formed the NWO, a move that ignited the Monday Night War. You can call this the new world order of wrestling, brother. I mean, it's really the beginning of the WCW revolution. Razor Ramon leaving was huge. Razor Ramon leaving with Kevin Nash changed the landscape. Diesel leaving to go to WCW helped kick off the Attitude Era. His influence shaped the business that the WWE is today. And he got to do it with his friends. Kevin Nash won several world championships throughout his illustrious career, but his everlasting impact on sports entertainment transcends titles. WWE is proud to welcome Kevin Nash into the WWE Hall of Fame Class of basketball player at the University of Tennessee, Kevin Nash always considered himself an athlete. He averaged 5.1 points and 4.2 rebounds at Tennessee, then left there to try his hand at a professional basketball career, playing some overseas ball. He was even invited to a Cleveland Cavaliers basketball camp. But when he tore a ligament in Germany in 1981, Kevin's career went in a vastly different direction. Talk about your basketball game. I mean, were you tough in the paint? Were you a rebounding cat? What was your game? Post up? Yeah, I was. I mean, I knew when I, I knew going in that they had plenty of offense. I knew they had, you know, they had Reggie Johnson, who was an all SEC guy. He was a 6'10 uh, <laughs> offensive machine. Um, later on, we got Dell Ellis that played, you know, for a hundred years in the NBA. Was one of the greatest three-point shooters in NBA history. Uh, so I mean, I knew I basically was going to go in and just kind of play, you know, do the dirty stuff, rebound, play defense. I always covered the toughest, uh, big, you know, the toughest inside guy they had offensively. I, mean, I covered McHale. Like, I mean, I played, I played against a lot of good guys back in the day. Well, but, tell me about uh, your career. Did you play three or four seasons there? 
Okay, three, you've got an altercation with the coach. How does this break down? What was the situation at hand? We're playing Kentucky at Kentucky. And, um, you know, I mean, that's always, that was our, you know, Tennessee's big rival. Gotcha. And uh, late in the first half, uh, one of our guys got fouled. We went up to the foul line. And back then we had two referees, so you, you could, you didn't have that third referee, so when, when a referee was handing the guy the ball and the other referee walked by us to our uh, right-hand side as we were getting set up on the side you know, to, for free throw, once, that, once you saw the one referee, um, his attention go to hand the guy the ball and the other guy's back was to you, you know, it was, if you were a cheap shot guy, which I was, and a lot of guys were. And the guy next to me was a guy named uh, LeVon Williams, I think was his name. I think it was a, from, it was a Kentucky kid, uh, played at, or came out of Denver, about 6'8", 6'7", guy. But, you know, good, you know pretty, pretty good body on him. Kind of, and he was just the same as me, kind of a hatchet guy. <clears throat> and he just, you know, I was, having, I was starting to have a good game. And then up in Knoxville, I'd score 10 points like in a row on him. Ended up turning the game around, so they they were going to get me out. So the guy elbowed me in the side of the head. I fired back at him, and kind of had a bench clearing incident. They threw me out of the game. So you know, my my coach, being the genius he was, instead of just leaving me in the locker room, he brings me back for the second half, sits me at the end of the bench, you know, where everybody can give me hell. They're throwing oranges at me, which was a common thing because we were the big orange. They throw oranges at us. So, you know, I'm pissed off. I'm sitting there. I can't do anything. We end up losing. We're going back down the locker room. And he comes up to me and gets in my face and says, you know, you're happy now, motherfucker. You know, you're hothead. You cost us a game. You cost us a game. And I pushed him aside and walked in the locker room. So we got in the locker room. I sit down. I was undoing my shoes. He stood right over me and, you know, started shit back up with me. And he just kept saying, you know, you want to hit somebody, hit me. You want to hit you so tough. You want to hit somebody, hit me. And I just stood up. I fucking just open hand smacked him right in the fucking head. And, uh, so what he do? Did he sell it? <laughs> went down like a bitch. <laughs> the fucking team looked at me like, what the fuck? Did he get back up? Did he try to come at you? Had he had enough? What no, happened? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he knew. He knew. He knew. He fucked he knew, up. He, he Don't knew, get he up. Knew right then he said that he brought the Detroit out of that boy. No, I thought he was. It was a, he was typical. You know, typical for those guys. But he was a Bobby Knight gotcha. disciple. Gotcha. Gotcha. You know, gotcha. He, he was that guy. You so know, then you, you get kicked off the team uh, immediately. No, no. He got to the point. See, I, I was. I was. I've always at least had some street smarts. So I immediately got an attorney. In town, and I figured, you know, because they told me, you know, he said you're off the team, and you know, whatever. I said yeah, whatever. So we went back uh, to Knoxville that night on a charter. The press had already got a hold of it because when I when I pushed, like I left the lo- locker room because my girlfriend was a cheerleader at the time, and I left the locker room to go, you know, go grab her and tell her what was up, you know, and. uh when I pushed the locker room door, like I pushed like 20 reporters away from there. They were all sticking with their ear up against the mm-hmm. door. So they, they heard everything. So it was immediately out. So University of Tennessee knew they had a PR nightmare on their, on their hands because people had seen him grab me in the hallway. On Sunday, I got a call. We, went, we met over in the athletic department, uh, athletic director's uh, office 
you know, and they said, you know, we got this, this we got to let, you know, put this thing at rest. And so we, me and the coach came on TV and had a press conference and basically said it was just, you know, misunderstanding between two, you know, the old heated exchange between two competitive people. Heated exchange. You know, mm. <laughs> but nothing happened, you know. So nothing when are you happened. off the team? No, I finished the season. I mean, and we played Florida at home the next game, and I started because the, any any change in the in the in the lineup would have meant that I was being punished. So the season's over. You decided not to come yeah. back for the fourth season. No, I, I was just, I was going. I was I actually was uh, it was it was the the spring semester, and. Um, we had a, an, an RA on our floor that was a, just an asshole, and he came down and said he smelled uh, weed in my room, and I wasn't doing anything. Not you. And he said he wanted to, he said he wanted to search my room. Yeah. I said no. He started to come in my room, and I fucking doubled him over with a gut shot, <laughs> and threw him out in the hallway. <laughs> well, he went and pressed charges with campus police, and they came and you nearly. Know, were acting like they were going to arrest me, and I told them I didn't, I didn't put my hands on him. I said, they ain't got a mark on him. So they just pushed him out of my room. I said, he ain't got the right to come in my room. Patented shot to the drum, no mark, street smart kid. Nothing. So then they bounced yeah. you out. What happened? So then, uh, so now it's like the, I'm, on, I'm on like double secret probation. Yep. So I've got a, I've got a black, uh, black studies class at like 6 o'clock at night on like Tuesday, Thursdays. And I'm walking across the middle of campus, and I'm smoking a, a, a joint. And this girl like comes and stands like dead in front of my, in front of my uh, like my path. Yeah. And just stands there, and I try to walk around her. She takes and she says, she says, "What is that?" And I said, "I said, what is what is it?" I said, "You've never seen a joint before." She said, "I thought so." I said, "What the fuck ever?" And just kept walking by and took my, you know, took up, got more hits, and you know, so I make a few class and. Put her out for the walk home. So, so she narked on you. I got a, yeah, just nothing. You know, so and, then they kicked uh, you out. Yeah, <laughs> they, they built their case up, and that was that was just strong. So that was it. <laughs> uh, you, you're out of school on your ass, and then you end up in the European League. Uh, long story short, how was the European League? Back then, it was like you know, I, I equated it to playing like uh, mid-level. Any dough? Mid-level college. Any dough? Two-ish. Got gotcha. you. About two hundred grand. Well, oh, that's good money, shit, especially back in the day. He spent a few years in the two hundred and second military police company in Germany, working on regaining his mobility and repairing the damage. After the knee injury healed to an extent. Nash entered the world of professional wrestling, training at the National Wrestling Alliance Mid-Atlantic's power plant. What was your impression of Jody? I mean, a lot of people, you know, Jody was one half of the Assassins, and Jody and his partner were a hell of a damn tag team, drew a lot of money wherever they went, and Jody was gold on a microphone, one of the most menacing, uh, you know, articulate promos with a message of destruction that would draw money that anybody ever heard. So what was your first impression when you met Jody? He was, you know, he was, you know, Jody was, was big, you know, by, by, by the time I met him, he was, he was really, he was always a big man, but I mean, Jody was, was, was heavy, but the thing that amazed me was like, he'd get, he'd get in the ring and he'd run the ropes. I mean, he could steal it and he was older, you know, and he was probably, you know, 350. And, but he could motor still. You know, he could still move. 
What was it? So, what was the focus of his teaching with you? Was it more bumps? I'm sure he, he wasn't teaching you at your size chain wrestling. So what was the bulk of his training as it pertained uh, to your structure and who you were? He he based everything. You know how it was. It was so different back then. You know, and, and right? You, you, know, you can attest to this that you know they didn't smarten you up for a long time. No, the business was still real. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, the first thing they did was, you know, first day you pay you 1500 bucks, you go down there, you do 500 Hindus, 500 step-ups, push-ups, sit-ups, and run the ropes, and then get somebody in there that's a, that's a shooter, and they sugar you. Pay the dues, and, go uh, through the routine, learn yeah, respect. You, you know, and then, and, and then, you know, there's eight guys that show up on a Saturday, you know, do that, and then they say, we'll see you guys on Monday. Well, come Monday, the only asshole that walks back in there is me. The rest of them said, fuck this. I went to a football game that Sunday with my wife and couldn't even get to the to, to my seat. I could, you know, up and down the, the, the stairs at the, at the at the Falcons game. I couldn't even walk. <clears throat> but I showed up Monday and they, you know, Jody wasn't even there. One of the other guys was there, and the guy sitting there drinking a beer. And I said, "Joe, I am here for my training. There's nobody in the in the, in the facility." So he gets on the phone and basically says, Jody, that big fucker came back. And he's like, all right. <laughs> so, I, you know, they brought uh, Dwayne Bruce came down and Jody came down and, you know, we went through some stuff and they just, you know, the first thing was just lock up. You know, we would lock ups from, you know, that day is all we did was lock ups. And, you know, Dwayne Bruce was probably five, six, five, seven. So right. You know, imagine that was, that was, you know, good learning session, locking up with a seven footer. So finally, Jody got out there and worked with me, and you know, Jody just and lockups were so different back then because they were so like the lockup part was so snug, and then you just immediately went to that, you know, work. But it was you know, that was the first thing they taught you, so it was almost like you thought in your in your mind, like, oh, this is just, this is a shoot. Damn right. I mean, a lockup is the beginning of any match, and it's one of the most important uh, parts of any match. And, you know, truth be known, and anybody that's in the ring, you, you set a pace. I mean, you set a tone with that lockup. Hey, you out there to do business? Absolutely. Snap in here, motherfucker. Or is it going to be some lack, lackadaisical, laissez-faire horse shit? A shitty lockup, you know, is a great start to a shitty match. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's just, and I'll, and I'll watch guys. Yeah, it's it's every the, the thing that he you know that that, that I learned from Jody was that, that a you're not going to have to do as much as anybody else. To be when you do do something, make sure it looks good. You know, it's just like lock up, grab that head. You know, and, I mean, it, 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 it was such a different business. Whatever you do, was, make look good. You, you ain't got to do a whole yeah. lot of anything, but what you do, make look make look good. The NWA Mid-Atlantic was on the verge of breaking away and becoming World Championship Wrestling at the start of the next year. Nash began his wrestling career as a bodyguard and the bodyguard of woman, who was at the time managing Doom. So the manager had a bodyguard. This quickly fell through, though, and Nash later appeared repackaged as Steel, a member of of the Master Blasters, along with Iron as his partner. Iron, however, didn't last long, getting replaced by Blade, which was Al Green. The Master Blasters debuted at Clash of the Champions 12, with a victory over the Lightning Express, which was comprised of Brad Armstrong and Tim Horner. And right now, let's hear from the undefeated Master Blasters. By now, everybody knows who we are, the Master Blasters. 
Iron and steel. We're not here to make any friends. I'll tell you what, we're here for one thing. That's to hurt people. Oh yeah, the Master Blasters. We haven't been beat yet. Nobody ever will. Unfortunately for Nash and Green, though, the fan reaction just wasn't there. And the Master Blasters soon were taken out of the rotation. How long were you in the school before you had your first match? I want to jump into your WCW career and get moving here. First match was probably eight months, and it was live on the Clash of Champions. It was me and my my partner, Corey Pendarvis, versus Brad Armstrong and Tim Horner. Okay, so you got that first match, and what did you wrestle that first match under? I was a Master Blaster Steel. I had a fuchsia mohawk. Well, let's talk about Master Blaster Steel. What was the mindset on creating that character? Did someone just say, hey, Kevin, you're a big motherfucker. Let's put a mohawk on you and call you Master Blaster Steel. Did you go home and think, hey, man, let me put this behind this thing. Here's the look. How did that all evolve? Well, the thing was, was, you know, was uh, Oli was the the booker at the time. Oli was the one I had the meeting with. And I went to uh, the Cobb County Civic Center and met him. And he, you know, looked at me, and I, you know, my hair was long. I had long brown hair, and uh, had that like Magnum P, you know, the Magnum PI mustache. And uh, he said, you know, yeah, I'm thinking about uh, a mohawk. And I'm thinking, and then they offered me, you know, seventy-five grand for my contract. And I was like, fine, so I'm gonna cut my hair off and take a pay cut to go do this shit. And I'm like, God, I said I wasn't too sure about doing it. And then I talked to my wife, and she said, you know, it's time for you to get out of that strip club, you know, because we've had some problems there. And yeah, yeah. I, and, but, you know, sooner or later you're going to get, you're gonna get you know, shot or stabbed or something in one of those deals. So she, my wife wanted me to get out of that shit, not knowing that there'd be even one pirate ship to get out of a fucking worse one. So uh, I just, you know, I, I said, fuck it, and went and got my hair done. And I was supposed to look like the dude from the the, 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 the Mad Max movie, that had the motorcycle, that had the red mohawk, he had the little boy, the little bitch on the back. Yeah, I had the fucking open ass cheeks on the back of his leather. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I was supposed to look like that guy. That was the look they were looking for. So they wanted me to mimic that look. So that's kind of where that whole, you know, thing came from. And, you know, I went and had had it done and, you know, came home and, you know, my wife looked at me like, what the fuck? And once again, like looking back at it, just a rib. You know, take a decent-looking guy and make him look like a fucking asshole. How long were you the Master Blaster before they uh, changed you up and switched you into the Isles gimmick? We had that, the Clash of Champions, and then we went on the road. And I was on the road for five days, came back, and what, uh, the last day there we were supposed to wrestle in Hammond, Indiana. And my, my part, I got up that morning, my, the, the guy that was my tag team partner just took off, went home. He wigged out. Just yeah, just can't, you know, just couldn't do it. So now I, I go to Hammond and I, I, I drive with Dutch and uh, Sid, and I got no partner. So I looked there and Grizz uh, opening match was Al Green versus somebody I don't know who it was. And Al Green they walked over and grabbed Al and said, "You're gonna you're gonna wrestle with this kid in a tender tag, this guy." So you know we shook hands and. Went out there, and you know, Al was a, a much better hand than the guy that was with that, that I had. You right. know, Al had been around a couple of years, so at least I had so the other guy was this fucking drizzling shits. I mean, they told me when they, you know, when they brought him in that this guy would, you know, be able to, you know, 
work the match and you just come in on the heat until you, you, know, you weren't so green. Well, how did we get to down the first night and to go over the match with Armstrong and Horner and, and Jody says, take, take an arm and the fucking the guy, my partner, didn't even know how to take an arm. And I'm like, Jesus, man, we're, we're fucked. So push forward, uh, me and Al, I think we got a, a win at Halloween Havoc against, uh, I forget what they were called, but it was uh, Armstrong and Smothers, and I think it was the Southern Boys or something like that. Yeah, Southern Boys, something like that. Yeah, Southern Boys. So we got a win, we, we got a win over them in Chicago at Halloween Havoc. So we were kind of getting a little bit of a push, so we went in Christmas time and had a two-segment match at center stage with the Steiners, and they were going to beat Al in the second segment uh, with the bull, with uh, the bulldog bulldog off the top with Robbie's finish and uh, we're in the we're in the room and uh, Al says ah, I think it's too, a little too soon to be beating us and they asked me to excuse myself and I left and about two minutes later Al came out and shaking his head and went into the room and grabbed his bag and he was gone. <laughs> so you're all by yourself again. Yeah, watch him go over and fucking erase the erase the match to the fucking board. <laughs> and uh, I said, God damn, here I am with a fucking mohawk. They looked at me and fucking said, throw your shit out. <laughs> Nash would spend the next few months regrowing his hair as he had a mohawk for the blasters. He was preparing for another crack at the big time with another new character. In May of 1991, Nash re-debuted as Oz, known for wearing a green coat with his silver hair. I, I don't understand that. I mean, uh, the company or Dusty had him do his hair silver or, or white or whatever it was. And, and I mean, Kevin was just such a, such a big guy that he really didn't need that, but... But maybe it was his his in-ring work at that point just needed something else when Dusty thought that Oz would do it. I remember him distinctly wearing some giant pink tights, you know, a, a full a full suit, and uh, you know, I remember the silver hair, and I remember his opinion of it too. So, <laughs> <laughs> of Kevin's opinion of yeah. it, yeah, yeah. Um, this is a very elaborate entrance. Clearly, there was some money spent uh, on creating this this gimmick. So somebody had to believe in it. Uh, we mentioned Dusty a couple of times just there. Is this Dusty? Is this Jim Hurd? What kind of power does one have to usurp the other one's decisions? I mean, can can Dusty say, if this is a Jim Hurd idea, can Dusty say, that's ridiculous? Well... This is at the beginning when WCW started throwing money at, at, at everything that they could. And uh, it's not that Dusty was out of ideas. He was just throwing it against the wall to see if it stuck. And that's just one of the ones that didn't. Oz was managed by the Grand Wizard, a.k.a. Kevin Sullivan, and was given another strong push on his way in. It's rumored that the main reason for this character was that Ted Turner had recently gotten the MGM catalog, which included The Wizard of Oz, and this led to a character being made to support the movie. At the very first Super Brawl, Super Brawl 1 Oz barely worked up a sweat, 
exercising more on his walk to the ring on a yellow brick road, of course, than he did destroying Tim Parker in less than a minute with his tornado slam. The quick wins continued at Clash of the Champions 15 as Oz easily beat Johnny Rich with another tornado slam. But once again, it seemed that the fans weren't, they just weren't getting behind the character. Oz's momentum slowed, losing to Ron Simmons via multiple shoulder blocks at the Great American Bash 1991. Oz later left television for a month in order to be repackaged yet again. He had the physical presence. He had the look, the size, the overall charisma, but something was missing. These characters weren't the hits to make this star. At the beginning of 1992, in came Vinny Vegas, a very large Italian casino bouncer. You heard it right. He made his first appearance at Clash of the Champions 18. This is where he quickly defeated Tommy Rich with the Snake Eyes. Talking to Kevin Nash about the character change from Master Blaster, quickly segueing into Oz and talking a little bit about Vinny Vegas. And we're going to start talking to the ins and outs of the business and some heavy-duty shit here. Uh, Master Blaster short-lived. Here comes Oz. I remember seeing the pay-per-view when you debuted. You came out there. I mean, with, with that outfit on, you was about eight feet tall, and you had this wicked goddamn mask on. You pulled it off, and you had your eyes wide open, and I was thinking, man, what the fuck is going on here? What were you thinking when you made that debut? Well, I mean, they didn't see the outfit or nothing until the day of, and they hand me this fucking deal, and it's just like, holy fuck, like another rib. I'm in a lime green outfit with a cape that weighs 200 fucking pounds. And they got a, I'm, I'm not only wearing a dunce cap, but I'm wearing a dunce cap with a rubber mask. And I'm going to pull an old man's face off and be me underneath it. Like, it, it, I think it be, be, maybe Minotaur might have been, have been the only thing that was any worse than that. I mean, just... <laughs> I'm looking at that motherfucking outfit going, like, you, well, I, like once again, you know, I, back then it was, you know how it was, man, fucking, they didn't want anybody to fight. They wanted everybody to quit. But the rib was, I mean, when you got out on the road, you didn't have like a travel kit and maybe just, you know, just wear the green shit. It was a big, it was like a big five by five crate. I remember it. Oh. It was brutal. Oh. I drag a fucking, uh, it was a Rubbermaid fucking thing, and I had a fucking padlock on it, and, you know, I mean, it, it the fucking thing must have weighed 75 pounds, and that was just my gear, let alone fucking, you know, my, you know, my, 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 my clothes and shit. This was what more wheels on shit back then. Well, you know, there, there wasn't wheels back in, and and why didn't that invention come around a little bit sooner? Because it could have saved you a ton of goddamn energy. You, you move into from that, you end up Vinny Vegas. And I actually enjoyed Vinny Vegas. It was kind of a, a, a piece of who and what you are. You're a funny cat, right. take a lot of shit serious, but you don't give a shit about a lot of stuff. Kind of an endearing uh, character. How, how was your time as Vinny Vegas? I liked it because, I mean, like, I, that was the first time that I had any, any input into what I was going to be. And I got a chance to talk, and I got a chance to be a jack-off, and, and I got a chance to have some fun. You know, during this time is when 
then uh, the whole time Jim Ross was like the only guy that was kind of on my team. Right. And Jim would always, Jim Jim was doing a, a wrestling radio show out of Atlanta. He'd do it on Sundays. And I, I was like a frequent guest of his because like he, he was one of the few people that would sit around and, and actually listen to me and say, well, shit, this guy's smart and he's funny and I'll put him on the radio. Jim was always an advocate for me. I mean, he was the one guy I always had in my corner. Right. And, uh, which was a good guy to have. And, you know, I mean, yeah, he's one of the few stand up fuckers that, you know, in the business, you know, and, you know, if you liked it, you liked the character. And so, so John Michaels, you know, Michaels, would, I guess, would, would, would saw me a couple of times. He called Robbie Steiner, said, do you think Nash can get out of his contract? I'd like to be my bodyguard. Cause nobody was selling for Sean in the WWF. And, uh, just jump to it, man. I, you know, I, I got a phone call from Robbie there in Green Bay, and he said, "Hey, can you get out of your contract?" I said, "Fuck yeah, I'll get out of it somehow." And I just drove the next set of TVs. I drove with Wyndham to uh, Dalton TVs and uh, just looked out the window the whole time and didn't say a word. Just you know, tried to do the work, and he bit it and said, "Man, you're not yourself. What's up?" I said, "My wife says she's going to leave me if I don't get out of business." And he said, well, "Fuck, man, what are you going to do?" I said, "I got to get out of business." He said, "We'll talk to Oli." Went and talked to Ole, uh, up at the WCW offices. Already had the offer to come to the WWF. Sat right there. Uh, got a, a release from a contract from Ole. Walked right over. Walked to the fax machine. Faxed that son of a bitch to Titan Tyler, to JJ. And I was in Albany, Georgia, or Albany, uh, New York, three nights later. Helping Shawn Michaels screw Marty Giannetti to get the Intercontinental belt on Raw the next Monday. When I first saw this gimmick, I said to myself, is that Oz? Because you cannot, cannot forget about the size, the height of Kevin Nash. He joined Harley Race's a half ton of holy hell stable. Yes, you heard it right. But unfortunately, things didn't pan out for Vinny Vegas as well. He would eventually leave the stable and wrestle on his own for a while, but actually wouldn't wrestle at a major WCW card for several months. Once again, Nash found himself floundering in World Championship Wrestling. That doesn't mean that Vegas didn't have a few good moments, mainly focusing on his joining the Diamond Mine with Diamond Dallas Page, Scotty Flamingo, later known as Raven, of course, and the Freebirds. Thinking about it, that's a pretty cool stable. Also, let's mention that Vegas was briefly around the Diamond Stud at this time. His later partner and best friend, Scott Hall. Vinny Vegas made one last major appearance at Clash of the Champions 22 when he was scheduled to arm wrestle Van Hammer for the title of Strongest Arm as Van Hammer had won a Jesse the Body Ventura-sponsored tournament at the end of 92 for the title. Van Hammer, though, was injured, so Vegas instead went against Tony Atlas. Vegas won the arm wrestling contest and claimed the title, so to speak, but nothing much came of it. Later on in the year, Vegas and Page tagged as the Vegas Connection. But when Page tore his rotator cuff, the team was disbanded. And for a fourth time, Nash's character fell once again. This was the last straw for Kevin Nash, who left WCW to join the World Wrestling Federation. Here now are comments from the high-stakes gambler, Vinny Vegas. Later on in the hour, Robbie V., it's me and you. 
Yeah, you got the privilege of wrestling the Vin Man. Hey, Van Hammer couldn't even answer the bell. Now, I know you've been in the locker room telling everybody you're some martial arts expert. Hey, if I had a dollar for every one of you garage-taught martial arts experts I smacked around, I'd be in the Fortune 500 right now. Tonight, on TV, you got the Vin Man, live and in living color. Hey, Hammer didn't answer the bell. Pray to God you don't, because if you do, the Vin Man will do the same thing. One, two, three. Robbie V. The story goes as told by the inductor to Kevin Nash, the heartbreak kid Shawn Michaels, that he saw Vinny Vegas on WSW television and he wanted him to be his bodyguard in storyline and in real life backstage in the World Wrestling Federation. He contacted Rick Steiner made the call, and Kevin Nash stated to his bosses at WCW that he wanted to retire completely and be out of the business. That lasted for a day as he hopped over. At that point, like he stated in his speech, he took the termination papers and faxed them over that very day to the WWF. Then in June of 93, Big Daddy Cool Diesel appeared on the scene of the WWF. WF. He was the bodyguard of the Heartbreak Kid, Mike requested. Shawn Michaels took Diesel under his wing. Even though Diesel was the massive man, Shawn Michaels was the superstar. Diesel helped Michaels win the Intercontinental title from Marty Jannetty and then was there to aid Michaels in retaining the title against Crush at King of the Ring 93. Diesel helped Shawn Michaels win the Intercontinental title from Marty Jannetty and then was there to aid HBK in retaining the title during his first pay-per-view appearance in the company against Crush at King of the Ring 93. Diesel would prove key in Michaels' success, especially winning titles, retaining titles, as well as protecting him backstage from the massive heat he was garnering. But also during this time, Diesel was interested in building his own wrestling career in the Federation. At the Survivor Series 93, Diesel teamed up with Adam Baum, Rick Martel, and Erwin R. Scheister IRS in an elimination match against Razor Ramon, Marty Jannetty, the 1-2-3 Kid, and the late, re late replacement, Macho Man Randy Savage. This was really the first time on a big stage we got to see what Diesel was like as an active competitor inside the squared circle. But at the time, Diesel was still thought of as a bodyguard, which meant that after showing off how high he could toss the 1-2-3 Kid, Diesel was first eliminated. He would fall to the late, great, co-Hall of Famer, Macho Man Randy Savage. During the event, Jannetty and the Kid were the sole survivors, with Diesel's team falling to defeat. But this would not be the last pay-per-view appearance for Diesel, as it was only the beginning. Diesel made his first major impact in the Federation at the 1994 Royal Rumble. This is, was a perfect example of how the Rumble can help make new stars. And it did just that. At a very lackluster year in Rumble history, this event did help make Diesel, especially during the early stages, 
of his WWF career. He came in at number seven and began destroying everyone to the shock of the crowd. After eliminating many of the first combatants in the Rumble, he seemed to earn the fans' respect. It started to build and build as they cheered every time he tossed someone over. It took nearly a half dozen superstars to get rid of him as he finally took it to the next level. Vince McMahon saw the potential in Big Daddy Cool Diesel after that night. Also during this time, the feud between Shawn Michaels and Razor Ramon had continued. In turn, this benefited Diesel along the way. In April of 1994, Diesel phased Razor for the Intercontinental title. And with Michaels' interference, Diesel won the match, earning his first wrestling gold. Diesel kept defending the title over the next few months, hanging on to it even while staying by Michael's side. Less of a bodyguard now and more of a tag team partner slash best friend. Despite the setback of losing by disqualification to Bret the Hitman Hart for the WWF Championship at the King of the Ring, Diesel and Michaels continued to dominate the WWF. This was emphasized as the duo would win the WWF World Tag Team titles from the Head Shrinkers. One half of the Head Shrinkers was also a co-Hall of Famer this year. Amazing, huh? This was at an August house show. Diesel, HBK, two dudes with attitudes, was her name, would become Tag Team Champions. It seemed everything was perfect for the duo, but that all changed at SummerSlam 94, where Diesel was defending the Intercontinental title against fellow best friend, click member, Razor Ramon. A miscue led to Michael super kicking Big Daddy Cool, knocking him out and allowing Ramon to take away the singles title. This started friction between the two wrestlers, which culminated at the Survivor Series that year in 94. Diesel and Michaels joined Owen Hart, Jim Neidhart, and Jeff Jarrett to take on Razor Ramon, the British Bulldog, the 1-2-3 Kid, and the Head Shrinkers. Diesel dominated and Michaels wanted in and accidentally hit BDC. Diesel went down and a furious Nash went after Michaels, causing the whole team to go to the dressing room. With all of them counted out, Ramon was labeled as the sole survivor. This began the rift between the best friend and solid relationship of HBK and BDC. One of the signs as a viewer that I remember that really triggered that they were going to split these two up and Diesel was ready to take his career to the next level was when they would come out and Shawn Michaels would shoot right in front of Diesel with the tag team titles. And I remember seeing them on TV shocking as I didn't read the results at the time. There was no internet and I didn't know that they won the tag team titles at a house show. And all of a sudden, they had all the gold. The tag team titles were in their possession. And when Shawn Michaels shot right in front of Diesel as they walked out to the ring, you got a sense that the cocky HBK was not having the popularity that Diesel was garnering. The friendship between Diesel and Shawn Michaels was over. The tag team titles were stripped from them a few days later. Diesel didn't stay without gold long, though, as... I decided to attend with my father, as typically we would, at the... Previously, there were monthly 
garden cards. And as the early to mid-90s were coming through throughout the new generation era leading into the Attitude Era, those monthly cards would get less and less and more sporadic at Madison Square Garden. But I attended with my father, front row, to witness a typical garden card. I, I believe it was an afternoon show, a matinee. So that usually would mean it would be a, a Sunday event. And on the card, midway through the event was... Bob Backlund, then World Wrestling Federation champion, defending the title against Diesel. So I thought to myself, and my dad thought as well, that this was you know a, a practice run to see how Diesel would do at the main event level for the main championship. It wasn't expecting anything big. Yes, the title was on the line, but we thought, of course, this was a test run for television to see how Big, big Daddy Cole would do. At the main event level. We were all shocked that night. The crowd erupted. As in 8 seconds. Diesel crushed. WWF champion Bob Backlund. To become. The new. World Wrestling Federation champion. At Madison Square Garden. The crowd erupted. With the hitman Bret Hart temporarily out of action, Big Daddy Cool, the ranked number one contender, the bell rings and Diesel, the seven-foot monster, seizes the opportunity. What a book to the midsection, and then from there, Bob Backlund, jackknife to the canvas, Diesel, the cover, and in a record-setting eight seconds, Diesel becomes the new World Wrestling Federation champion. The celebration was on as Big Daddy Cool became the leader of the new World Wrestling Federation generation. Big Daddy Cool Diesel was now the company's top dog, the champion of the World Wrestling Federation. Shock. I flipped out. The entire garden flipped out. Goosebump City, like a, I like to call it before Brock has Suplex City. I called it Goosebump City here on BTB. But it was insane when Kevin Ash Diesel won his first WWF championship. Unreal. What a moment. For that one small instance, that moment in time, Diesel was the hottest thing in the world wrestling federation it didn't eclipse or come looking back at it come nearly as close to hulk hogan winning his first wf championship at the garden but at the at that at that moment it felt like it because you were going through this new generation era superstars leaving the wwf transitioning happening and there was a lull there was some lackluster i'm not saying effort the superstars gave it their all but from a storyline perspective, the gimmick-wise, the WWF was going through a rut. But at this moment, it felt so intense. The, the shock of it alone causes fans to erupt. No one predicted that to happen. Some thought, was this a non-title match? Was it supposed to be a non-title? Maybe they changed it? No. When he raised the WWF championship in the air, you knew a moment was happening. And for that one brief instant, the feeling of Hulk Hogan winning the WWF Championship seemed to be mirrored. No way should it be compared exactly. No, it's apples and oranges. Can I even touch the Hulkster? But it was great to have that feeling for that one moment in time during the new generation era. 
Diesel had made it to the very top, finally finding the right path for himself after so many failed gimmicks. A standing ovation for you, Diesel, and that must really make you feel great. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you, thank you. All right, let's take you back to the Survivor Series, if we may. An unbelievable stellar performance, single-handedly, almost annihilating everyone else on the other team until Shawn Michaels decides he wants to get into the ring. And, of course, we know what happened after that. I would suggest that was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. We know we had a strategy where everybody was going to go in on the Teamsters. We're going to show what we had as a team. Somehow, when I uh, got in, Sean decided I would stay in. And when I started to run out of gas, or should I say diesel, Sean decided it was time to stay in a little bit longer. I jackknife Razor Ramon. Now, Sean Michaels wants the tag. And we all know how much Sean loves the spotlight, don't we? Oh, yes, we do. We definitely know about that. But uh, he didn't uh, exactly get what he thought he was going to get. As a matter of fact, uh, we last saw him uh, in his automobile getting out of town. Yeah, I got a message to you, Shawn Michaels, wherever you may be. That is, the Survivor Series, you might have got away. And I tell you, if I would have got my hands on you that night, you wouldn't have survived. Obviously... You did. You survived. As a matter of fact, since Shawn Michaels decided to uh, dump the tag team championship belt into the trash can, obviously there was a disillusionment of the tag team championship combination with you and Shawn Michaels. Therefore, Jack Tunney had to make a decision. With the hitman Bret Hart temporarily out of action, you were named number one contender for your opportunity in Madison Square Garden. Tell us how that felt that day. Describe that day, if you would. Well, I woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning because I couldn't sleep. I was scheduled to fly in from Pittsburgh at about 8 o'clock. I took an earlier flight so I could get into the city. I took a cab from LaGuardia into the city and decided I'd walk the streets. I walked the streets of New York City, and a person here and a person there wished me good luck. And as each person came to me and wished me good luck, I felt a little bit better about my chances. And as the day went on, after a couple of hundred people came up to me and said, hey, Big Daddy, do the job tonight at the Garden. Bring home the gold, Big Daddy. Well, like Jackie Gleason says, how sweet it is because Big Daddy has got that gold. Yes, but I would suggest that uh, I would suggest you have not heard the last of the man who is the master of the cross-faced chicken wing, Bob Backlund. Hey, Bob. Now, besides those bow ties, which I got to say are quite stellar. Hey, you're a real wrestler. You're a real man. I respect you. If you get the cross-wing chicken on me, hey, it might be trouble for Big D. But you know what, Bob? You got to get it on me. You gotta get it out. Whether or not that can be accomplished, I guess maybe time will tell. The hitman Bret Hart is watching us tonight, temporarily laid up. As a matter of fact, we uh, had him on the phone a few minutes ago. Any uh, words for the hitman? Well, I don't know Bret that well, 
I did combat with Bretton June at King of the Ring. It was 30 minutes of hell. The man is a great competitor. He was a true champion. I don't like the way Bret Hart's belt was taken from him. Because I think I know, and everybody out there knows, that if they were waiting on Bret Hart to give up on his own, Survivor Series would be going on right now. I have to agree with you there. Now, I've been a champion for a few hours, a couple of days. It's all new to me. But if there's one thing I can do, one thing I can emulate from Bret the Hitman Hart is I want to become, as he was, a fighting champion. Bret never! Yes, the fightingest champion of all time. Bret never turned down a challenge. I'm not real proud of the way I got mine, but he didn't turn it down when the time came. And Bret, enjoy that great family you have right now. Enjoy your time off. I'm sorry about the injury, but I'll tell you, as a man with my word and my hand out in front of you, anytime, anywhere, Bret Hart, you want a shot at this belt, brother, you got it. That's a promise from Big D. All right. Any, uh, any last words of wisdom? On lives the new generation and the World Wrestling Federation. Yeah! There you have it, Big Daddy Cool, the new World Wrestling Federation champion. In the final month of the year, Diesel promised a title shot to former champion Brett the Hitman Hart, who had lost the title to Bob Backlund. While promising the title shot to the Hitman, his old rival while refusing Shawn Michaels, who was upset that his bodyguard had the title before he did. Like Shawn Michaels mentioned uh, uh, during his Hall of Fame speech, that Shawn Michaels said to Vince, great, so I brought this guy in, and now you're giving him the strap. He's getting over. Meanwhile, I'm not even the champion. Shawn Michaels, legitimate gripe, but it mirrored in storyline fashion. As Diesel was WWF champion, this enraged the heartbreak kid, the man that brought him into the company. Then, at the 1995 Royal Rumble, the heartbreak kid Shawn Michaels would show all of his frustration and show what he could do by winning the Rumble match, becoming the number one contender to Diesel's championship. After months of feuding, the former friends went at it at WrestleMania 11. Michaels brought in someone new, a new bodyguard, to cover his back as he took on his former bodyguard. Shawn Michaels brought out Psycho Sid Vicious, the former Sid Justice from his first run in the WWF, from the former Sid Vicious from his WCW run to now Psycho Sid. The two became aligned. Shawn Michaels had a new psycho and vicious bodyguard in Sid. But in the end, Diesel proved to be too strong, giving HBK a jackknife powerbomb to put him out, retaining the WWF Championship. Even though Diesel was the champion, he was not in the main event final match at that year's WrestleMania as it was headlined by Lawrence Taylor taking on Bam Bam Bigelow. Later on in the year, Diesel and HBK had buried the hatchet between them, once again joining up as a team. Two dudes with attitudes were back. 
Diesel went on to engage in a heated feud with Bret the Hitman Hart. In November, Bret Hart and Diesel decided to settle things at the Survivor Series 95, making their world title match a no-count-out, no-disqualification affair. Hart got the roll-up pin and won the championship away from Diesel, ending his year-long reign. A furious Diesel powerbombed Hart repeatedly after the match, turning heel once again. Going into 1996, Diesel had a mission, a mission of getting back to the World Heavyweight title. He also wanted to retrieve the title from the man who took it from him, the hitman Bret Hart. At the Royal Rumble of 96, Diesel first appeared by attacking The Undertaker, costing him the world title as Hart got the win. Diesel then went in as one of the favorites that year in the Rumble match and lasted for a long while after entering at number 22. Although he was a force, throwing out several superstars, Diesel got caught at the very end by a Shawn Michaels superkick, sending him to the outside and giving Michaels a back-to-back double two-time Rumble victory. Despite the loss, Diesel still had a shot at the title. He took on Bret Hart for the championship at In Your House 6 in a steel cage match. The cage was designed to both keep the superstars in the ring, in the match competing, and to keep The Undertaker out near the end of the bout. However, just as Diesel was about to escape, The Undertaker suddenly appeared through the ring floor, through the apron, pulling Diesel into the depths of hell. Hart escaped and retained the championship heading in to WrestleMania. Diesel and The Undertaker continued their feud in the coming weeks, with moments like Nash destroying one of Undertaker's caskets while finding himself, quote-unquote himself, it was a dummy, you know, a wax statue, whatever the case, it looked identical to Diesel laying inside a casket. At WrestleMania 12, the two met up with The Undertaker surviving multiple power bombs and coming back to give Diesel the Tombstone Piledriver, winning the match. During this point, as a fan watching, not knowing exactly what's going on behind the scenes, you had a sense that Diesel was changing, evolving. Something was happening. Something was brewing. You had a sense that Diesel was not in the future plans for the World Wrestling Federation. Why? He was a former champion. He was Big Daddy Cool. He still had great fanfare, whether heel or babyface. By this point, Diesel was playing out the rest of his contract. He was set to be leaving the company. You know, I, I, I had told him all along, you match the money that Turner does, and I'm staying. I don't want to go anywhere. Right. But at the same, at the same time, like I said, I got an eight-month eight pregnant wife. You know, and, and and I don't know how much money I'm going to make each year, and it's hard to raise kids. I'm 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 looking as a, I'm a businessman, family man, and I'm but I'm a pro wrestler too. That's what I do, and I don't why. And I don't care what anybody said. I was playing for the New York Yankees 
and I was going down to the fucking Toledo mud hens. I might have been getting fucking double the bank, right. but, man, there was no way on God's green earth that there was perception that WCW was anything but a second-rate pro wrestling company, period. So, and I'm giving up Diesel going back to a place that put me in a fucking green uh, dunce cap. So, but let, let me ch- check this out. I mean, because I, I can see the, the lure of the money. And, and this was back in the day. Now, now, help me out here with this, Kev, because back in the day, there was no such thing as a guaranteed contract. You guys set, the, you guys set the precedent right then with guaranteed money. And, and like you said, it, it might have been the Bush Leagues. But, hey, man, you was going down for, you know, a lot more money and guaranteed dates and you know you yeah you want to stay in new york you want to stay in the wwf but you you don't know how many shots you're going to run you don't know what you're going to get paid because this was before the downside guarantee you knew you you knew you're going to get paid fair but that guaranteed money and a lot of it is guaranteed money and a lot of it so you had to do what you had to do for you yeah and 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 it was a situation where it would have been a lot harder. Was it was Scott made the decision first that he was going to go, right? And then we went to Louisville and and we did an in your house pay per view, and the finish was supposed to be I I screwed Taker out of uh, beating Brett at the Rumble, and that was the time when I flipped I flipped Taker off when I left the ring, and. Then we went to Louisville, and I had, it was an in-your-house, and I had Brett in a cage, and what I wanted to do was I wanted to powerbomb Brett, turn, and then when I went to turn, have t- that's when Taker was going to come up through the bottom of the uh, ring and grab me and pull right. me down to the depths of hell, and we did that whole angle where, you know, I, I crawled out. But after Brett... You know, got out of the ring is when, when, you know, so, but the whole thing was, is we had enough, however long I would have been underneath there would have gave Brett time to sell the power bomb and get out. But the thing that we want, the story we want to tell was I caused Taker the title. He caused me the title. And now we were going to mania against each other in in, in the co-main event with, with Sean versus Brett as the as the other as the other top match, and it was it was one of those deals where we were setting up our shit, and Brett went in and lobbied. Brett went in and lobbied. Brett went in and lobbied, and finally Vince came to me with about fifteen twenty minutes for the first match. He said, "Ah, he says you don't need that power bomb. We can still tell the same story." I said, "No, we can't. It's not the same story." And I said, "You know what? You know, fuck it. Fine." I walked right over to Scott. He was sitting over in the corner. I walked over to him. I said, I'm gone. Mm-hmm. I said, I am gone. Because it was always that placation that, you know, yeah, he's been here longer, da, da, da. And it, it, what, what, what we were trying to do was what was right for business. And it, it, it was always going to be, I said, you know what, man? I said, I'm just done with it. So I said, I'm gone. So I mean, I, I mean, my, so now, you know, Scott and I knew that we were leaving, but we didn't tell anybody we're leaving. Right. But now it comes to that situation in your contract. Remember, you you had to give that 90 day notice. Right. So and, but, words, but before you go yeah, that 90 day notice, but, but so you were, you were still teetering. You still wanted to stay. You're, you're waiting for him to make that offer. But then on that finish, that's when you say, hey, I'm gone. And you were committed to leaving with, with Scott, is that correct? Right. Okay, so go ahead. Right. That 90-day so out. Not, it, it, 
but now you got to give your 90-day notice, which is basically mm. the right for them to job you for three months mm. yes. and make you worth nothing. So he, uh, we got on the, you know, so I sent, you know, Scott sent, we're like six days apart, so Scott sent his letter in. And uh, I sent a letter in, and it was, you know, I, I, I thanked Vince for everything he did for me I, I, because he made me. I mean, I was absolutely. You know, I came in there, you know, I was nobody. So Vince, Vince was the first guy that saw something in me. Vince McMahon made me, and I owed Vince, but I also owed myself and my family too. And it wasn't like I didn't work my ass off. No, it's a two-way so street, said, brother. No. Right. So I said, you know, so now it's a situation of. You know what? What you want me to do? He says, "What? Well, you know, I want you to put Taker over at Mania." I said, "What? Well, an honor? How, I mean, he can light me on fire." He says, "I'd like you to to, to put Sean over it in your house, clean." And I said, "Done." And he said, "I want you to put Warrior over on on Raw." And I said, "If he can take one, I mean, it's his." Mm. And he said, "Okay, so probably the raw thing ain't gonna happen. But not, you have a problem with the other two? I said, "No, not 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 at all." And I, and I, the thing that, that killed me more than anything was me and Taker were working towards Mania, and they all got pissy. And when I came back in 2000, they all, like Dunn and all them guys were still pissy. And I said to him, I pulled them aside. I said, "Let's remember some." I said, "You guys, as soon as I gave my notice, you guys dropped the whole angle." I said, "I sat back there with Kerwin." It put together the whole thing of shooting me in the in the in the coffin, so we could run it back on on uh, on TV, and me open the casket and see me in the casket. I said that was all my shit. I was still making sure that my angle with Taker was as good as it could possibly be. You guys did the boo boo face. You guys all did the pout. I'm leaving. I said, and I said, now I could, because we we're, we we're coming back on a flight from Europe when I first came back, and they, everybody had this attitude, like they had the big vote whether or not they wanted us to come back. And I said, I said, I've always been been business, I've always done business, I've never had a problem doing a job. I said, but man, I said, you got to realize, I mean, your your skew of, of, you know, you read the history, you know, I remember one time a book came out, and we're in the middle of our run in NWO, and it was like. Kevin Nash was the worst champion in the history of the WWF. Like, well, okay, I'm still president. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, but they're always gonna get those digs in on you, like you know, like, like. Well, they, yeah, they gotta, away. they gotta take care of their own. I remember it was when I bolted when I didn't want to do that job for Brock Lesnar, and you know, <clears throat> I was running too hard, making bad decisions. But they sure threw my ass under the bus. And, you know, they got to take care of the machine. And you know as well as I do, dude, you know, you got to have thick skin to be in the business. But still, sometimes oh, things yeah. hurt. But, you know, the machine is always going to take care of itself and the machine's going to keep rolling. But uh, just those last 90 days had to been pure hell. And I can understand, you know, obviously you want to do the business with Taker, do the business with Sean, and maybe not so much with Warrior. But just, man, from a feeling of the boys and management, were you just now just a total outcast? Was it uncomfortable? Well, no, you know that 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 picture, the, the picture that we have, that 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 classic picture of us all on the back of the bus. Yeah, that was that that was that European trip that we did. That was like God, like twenty six days or whatever. 
And that was that was before I left. That was right before I left. That was mm. my last European trip. And I worked with Taker every night. And it was one of those deals, man. I just I, I got there the first night. And I just looked at Mark. I said, man, I said, let's just have fun. Let's just call in the ring. Let's just whatever happens. You know, you're gonna you're gonna tombstone me every night. People are gonna leave happy. You know, I said. Let's just do this. And we went out there for, for 26 days and, I mean, just had a ball, you know, just and, – and the guy – because that group was such a tight group, man, because I, I don't care what anybody says. You look at the back of that bus, that, that was the business. That was a crew there, man. That was it, man. That was the business. And, and you, you take a, you, you split that down the middle and, and start another company and, and, and you, you can't lose either way. So, you know – you look at that situation and you say to yourself, you know, that, that there, there, there's your attitude era right there. There's the NWO, there's, there's uh, DX, there's Stone Cold, there's Taker. You know, the only guys missing from that photograph was, uh, was Brett. Yeah. I mean, that was really the only guy that was, was, was missing from that photograph. So, um, and those were great because we we all felt that we dug you know Hulk and them left in the garden was at like $112,000 that curtain call that fucking house was I think $328,000 and that was me and Sean on top so yeah I know I never drew and everything else but blow me that son of a bitch was the biggest house they ever had that wasn't a pay-per-view it was and three hundred thousand dollar houses didn't come around very often in '96. So I felt that I had been one of the major players that helped build that from a hundred thousand dollars to tripling the to tripling the house on my way out the door. So it wasn't like I didn't deserve what I got and where I was going. And I didn't. I'm not saying in any form or fashion. I had the I had the chance to go out on a nightly basis and work with the Austins, the Michaels, the Scott Halls, the Bret Harts, the Undertakers. I went out there every night and worked with a Hall of Famer. So, and and, and I'm not saying I didn't need it either. I'm not saying I was you know Luthes by, but I could do I could always do my part and. But I was just lucky enough to, people will sit there and they'll say, you know, they just, this guy asked me the other night, he said, he said, uh, give me your uh, Survivor Series uh, five on five. I said, all right. I said, well, my team's the click. I said, then I'm going to go against Hogan, Austin, Rock, Taker, and Andre. I said, maybe I'll have to throw Brett in there instead of one of those other big guys so we can get some movement at the beginning. I said, but I said, that, that's my era of guys. Andre's right. the only guy that I never worked with. It's been well documented, especially here on Beyond the Bell, as well as on the WWE Network, multiple DVDs and releases. Eric Bischoff of World Championship Wrestling was attempting to compete with the World Wrestling Federation on Monday nights, creating the Monday Night War. And in turn, he was going after WWF superstars. 
Hulk Hogan would leave, Macho Man Randy Savage, and others. And now he would approach Kevin Nash. Vince could not compete with the money offered from WCW and Ted Turner, and as a result, he had one final pay-per-view match in the WWF. This was at Good Friends, Better Enemies, In Your House, where he took on his best friend, the Heartbreak Kid, the WWF World Champion, Shawn Michaels. This was a no-disqualification match. The two had an incredible brawl, which featured Michaels getting powerbombed through a table and Diesel stealing the artificial leg of Maurice Vachon at ringside. Mad Dog Vachon's leg was used in a match. Classic. An iconic moment in Diesel's career. He used the leg as a weapon. It backfired on him, however, as Michaels hit him with the leg instead. They got the super kick to knock him out, allowing Michaels to stay WWF champion. Scott had given his notice first. And the, the language of the contract back then was that you had to give uh, your notice that you weren't going to let the contract roll over within 90 days. So, and it was back then you signed a three year deal, so they owned you for three fucking years. So, my, my deal was coming up uh, on June the 6th, was my, my deal was coming up. So, you know, Scott um, gave his notice, but I, and I, and I you know, I, I had to give my notice. Um, and we were, we were short, like Scott and I were, like, I think he was a week or two before mine. It was really, it was kind of crazy how it worked out. And uh, so I gave my notice that we had, we had TV in Stockton, uh, Stockton, California, and I, and I, I Went outside and talked to because I had to, you know, send the FedEx to to, to Vince's office uh, to make sure that you know the, the, that they received my notice. So they received my notice, and then that was the first chance that Vince and I were face to face since he, he had got my notice. And you know, I, I went uh, down to uh, to Destin, Florida, and uh, that's where you know I sat. With, me and Tamara sat down there together, my wife people that don't know of course you know my wife Sam. yeah and uh, we sat down there in, in Destin and you know I, I went back and forth it just you know can I do this can I not I mean just to send the fucking letter was 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 I knew I was gonna semi burn that bridge with with Vince but I mean I I, I didn't I only sent it I, I said you know in the letter I was hoping that you know that this was just that I didn't want to further Further, this contract that I needed a different contract, but I in no means was saying that I was leaving the WWF. And uh, so we sat there, we talked, and I told him pretty much what you know what the offer was on the table from from the Turner organization. And fucking, he just kind of looked at me and gulped, you know, and he fucking he took the it was you know, it was it was, tip, it was just good fucking Vince McMahon you know it's just that fucking good because he's you know the no sell kind of and he took like four or five steps away and then slowly turned around like Clint Eastwood and fucking High Plains Drifter and said I thought we were family <laughs> you know hit you with a bam and I was like fuck we are man I said, I'm just asking you and I, said, I said man I got a fucking I got a wife at home that's, that's pregnant you know she's like I think at that point man Tamara's like seven months pregnant I said, it's pretty fucking hard to run a family waiting on whether or not you're going to be fucking booked at WrestleMania and have a fucking good year or not. And, Bill, you got to understand, this is before the day, man. There's never been a guaranteed contract in history, correct? 
Right. For the for, I mean, for this kind of money, uh, anyway, there might have been a, a right. hundred G contract, but this is first big time guaranteed money. And man, when you're in the business, you're beating up down the road, and you don't know what you're going to make. And all of a sudden, you can see what you will make, and it's a shit pile. You're highly attracted to it. So decision time. You got to do what you got to do. And you guys all decide to go down south, correct? Right. So we uh, we went ahead and made the decision, and and which was great for Scott because then he knew he was you know going back down there alone, and uh, so we you know but uh, I just told Vince you know Matt, Matt's the offer, and he said he said I can't. He said I match the offer of you. He said he named four or five guys that right. were still on the roster. And he said I'd have to match that offer to them. Because it ain't like fucking you ain't gonna tell Sean and you, if you you're gonna tell Mark. You mean Brett? I'll be, I'll be signing this fucking deal for everybody. So I, I just can't afford to do that. So I said I, I understand. So you know, just it's over. We stay friends. I said, but I got to do what I got to do. And then he said to me, he said, well, I'd like you to put the take her over at WrestleMania. I said, fucking, it would be an honor to put Mark over. He, you know, fuck, I watched that motherfucker work with broke ribs, you know. And, yeah, Mark's one of the toughest guys in the history yeah, of the business. Yeah, understand absolutely. Guy loves. Just, so you did you did business with him. Did business with him. He said, I'd like you to do a job for Taker. He said, I'd like you to do a job for uh, Sean in Omaha at uh, in your house. I'd be lying. He said, I'd like you to put the ultimate warrior over it on Raw. And I said, well, I'd, I'd, I'd be an honor if I can put uh, Mark over. I said, of course, I'd do anything for fucking Sean. He, he got me to the fucking dance. I said, as far as the elephant war, if he can take one on me, it's all his. And he said, well, maybe we just won't have that raw match then. I said, yeah, pr probably, probably not. So then we so roll into Madison Square Garden, and it's you guys in a cage, for, right? Yep, we, and, and this is this is back in the days, and, and, it, 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 and, and people think that, you know that now it was it was bullshit. You know that, that that whole drug testing era. We were drug tested for three years. There wasn't a fucker in, in, in the WWF from when I walked in that door to the day I left. There wasn't a fucker taking steroids. There wasn't nobody smoking pot, uh, booze and pills. Well, you know you get them from a doctor and alcohol's legal. But anything illegal, fucking was was not being fucking allowed in that in that locker room. And we're driving up to the fucking building. And Scott looked at me and he goes, he goes, well, this is the last time we're going to be at the guard. He says, let's work this motherfucker stoned. I said, man, we had nine, I hadn't been stoned fucking for three years. He said, that's, we, we fucking pulled one out. He had, he had, he had fucking a little bit of fucking weed and we fucking smoked one. We, you know, fuck, you walk in the Massachusetts Garden and that fucking, the house was a $350,000 house. So what was the card? You guys come in a little bit lit. What's the card? The the, the card, the, the last two matches are uh, Triple H versus uh, Scott Hall. And then the main event is in a cage for the world title is Diesel against the, the champion, uh, Shawn Michaels. So it was you and Shawn so, in the cage at the end. They had already worked. Yeah. I had jerked the curtain that night. I was like a second or third match. And because that's what I did, I was at the curtain watching the matches. I watched everything go down. Uh, you guys, um, go, who's in the main event? That Was that Shawn and you? Yeah, me and Shawn. It was you and Shawn. The match is over. And then here comes Triple H. X-Pac and fucking uh, Scott. 
No, Sean was uh, X Pac wasn't there. It was just, X Pac uh, wasn't there. Was, uh, he wasn't there. It was Thanks just, for uh, correcting Hunter. me. Go ahead. Yeah, Hunter and uh, Hunter and Scott came down the highway, but they came back down the highway after just having a <laughs> having a match. So um, Sean Sean super kicked me, walked over my my body, you know, aka Bruno style, walked out the fucking door, hit the hit the floor, and then took another two steps, turned back and looked at me, and then he kind of shook his head and walked back in the door and then, like, picked me up. If you remember, he kind of picked me up on my head, like, kind of like the uh, the wounded mm-hmm. warrior type thing, you know, and kind of I came to, and I kind of, because we said, didn't want to not, you know, not sell his kick, so we kind of, he kind of, you know, I went to the ropes and kind of sold, and it gave those guys time to come down. We all did our things, and the thing was, we said, "Hey, you know, this is our last time in the garden. Can we, can we kind of, you know, can we do this thing?" And Vince didn't think anything of it. We were supposed to be going out to dinner afterwards, and you know, it just kind of took a took on. It was, it, but it was, it wasn't like we we just did it. I mean, so y'all didn't break it down. Y'all didn't say, "Hey, man, let's go out there and give one big fucking hug." Uh, it was just kind of a in a moment type thing that happened. Yeah. Yeah, because man, as it was going down, you got to understand, man. Uh, people that listen these days, I mean, everybody's kind of smart to what's going on. But back in, the business was still, even after all the exposés, the twenty twenties, and all right. the bullshit, the business was still somewhat protected, and damn sure it was protected in Madison Square Garden in a steel cage. All of a sudden, you guys go out there and hug, and I'm thinking, what in the fuck is going on from the curtain? I can't believe what I'm seeing. It was shocking, dude. That's a shoot. You know, I didn't know what the, I didn't know where to shit or wind my watch. You guys are hugging in the garden. Yeah, I mean, it just, it, it was one of those things, man. It wasn't planned. It just, it was organic. It was, it was four guys that have been fucking through hell and back for so many years. You know, thousands, you know, a couple of thousand days on, well, not a thousand days at least on the road together. And it just, man, it just kind of, we hugged and we went to the corners and man, they were, we, I looked out in the crowd, there were people crying and because everybody knew we were leaving and it was, yeah. you know, it was just. That's the thing, people moments. crying in Madison Square Garden. When you get over in front of a garden crowd, whether they love you or love to hate you, they love you. And you're over, yeah. And you're 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 part of that uh, that that family, so to speak. And they pay money to see your ass. And if you can get over in front of a, a garden crowd, you can get over anywhere. Yeah, I mean, and, and that was that, that was that you know the the, 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 the it was a it, it was a moment that in retrospect you know wasn't the right thing to do. Probably not, but it, it wasn't done. It wasn't. It was never done with with, with any kind of malice. It was done was asked for it was done out of respect for the for the guys and we did a little thing at the end where me and scott kind of like squared off with with uh hunter and and uh and sean like you know but basically what, what we had talked about in the car was this is the end of the fucking click man this is just divide and conquer we're gonna go down we're gonna go down south and take over the other company you guys still run this one you know so we basically looked at it as well, click's gonna run the wrestling world that's the way we looked at it a short time later in diesel's last night as a world wrestling federation superstar the infamous curtain call incident took place after the quote unquote clicks respective matches now let's discuss the click, not in detail, as you know the story already. We mentioned it when archiving the career of Scott Hall. We'll mention it when we 
document the Heartbreak Chronicles, the story of Shawn Michaels. The clique comprised of Scott Hall, Razor Ramon, Kevin Nash, Diesel, Shawn Michaels, Triple H, and the 1-2-3 Kid with Justin Credible, PJ Polacco, Aldo Montoya as the proverbial sixth wheel of the group. They were all best friends, traveled together, shared their pay with each other. In turn, they revolutionized the business as a cohesive group behind the scenes. They wrestled each other, fought against each other, argued, but hugged it out, and were all best friends during the process. So after their respective matches at Madison Square Garden, another moment that I was lucky enough to witness in person, but was shocked again to see. A lot of moments in Kevin Nash's career. I was lucky enough to be there for, but was so surprised to even witness. Diesel took on Shawn Michaels. Razor took on Triple H. And the final match was inside a steel cage, the Big Blue Bar steel cage, with, of course, Shawn Michaels going over Big Daddy Cool. So Nash, Hall, Michaels, and Triple H all hugged inside the squared circle together and said their farewells in front of the fans, breaking the proverbial code, the secret good versus evil pact. Kayfabe, Nash and Ramon, Scott Hall, then left the company that had built them into huge superstars, heading over to the competition where their gimmicks had failed. Their old stomping grounds, World Championship Wrestling. What would happen in Kevin Nash's career now? The second phase, or some would say even the third phase, his initial phase, was his debut in WCW. The second phase as Diesel in the WWF, now entering another phase of his career. This time going back with his best friend. The former Diamond Stud in WCW, Razor Ramon and Diesel, were now headed to WCW. But, of course, they couldn't be known as Diesel and Razor, both names copyrighted by the World Wrestling Federation. On part two of this Hall of Fame special, we'll document this next phase of Kevin Nash's career as these two huge superstars in the World Wrestling Federation became outsiders in World Championship Wrestling. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Wrestling-Online.com is your source for all the latest news and stories in the world of professional wrestling. The Wrestling Online newsletter dates back to 1996, and with over 26,000 subscribers, Wrestling-Online is the largest and longest-running free wrestling newsletter on the internet today. Wrestling-Online.com's instant news alert service brings the latest news immediately to your email so that you can be the first to comment socially. The instant news alert service is free of charge and will keep you updated with the latest breaking news, delivering you instant updates before the Wrestling-Online newsletter is even released. Take your news on the go with the Wrestling-Online.com mobile app for the iPhone, iPad, Android, and BlackBerry devices. Wrestling-Online.com for over 20 years providing wrestling fans with the latest news and happenings in professional wrestling and sports entertainment. 
Big Daddy Cool Diesel. You're listening on the SNS Radio Network. Well, fans, it looks like we're almost at E on empty as we wrap up part one of this three-part edition, reliving the memorable and Hall of Fame career of Kevin Nash. What gimmicks, a master blaster to Oz to Vinny Vegas on his way to arguably one of the most popular characters in the mid-90s Big Daddy Cool Diesel, where he met up with fellow best friends and clique members, Triple H, Shawn Michaels, Scott Hall, Shawn Waltman, X-Pac, 123Kid, and occasionally just incredible PJ Pelago, Aldo Montoya. The clique were formed in the mid-90s, and a lot would change for Kevin Ash as he enters the late 90s into the Attitude Era and the Monday Night War between the WWF and WCW. Nash was in the thick of it. We cover his entrance into WCW, his rise and fall on the promotion as the rise and fall of WCW would happen, how he became booker of the company, all the gimmicks and storylines involved with the New World Order, the trials and tribulations he had with his best friend Scott Hall during that point. All this culminating in part two of the history, the retrospective series covering now Hall of Famer Kevin Nash. Like I mentioned in the upcoming weeks, we wrap up the Hall of Fame editions. Two more parts covering Kevin Nash, but next week, part two, the final part covering the career of Macho Man Randy Savage. We left off talking about Randy Savage losing the career-ending match against the Ultimate Warrior at WrestleMania 7. What would be next for the Macho Man? The broadcast booth. And then eventually his opportunity to shine in a different promotion as he would leave the WWF onto WCW and the latter part of his memorable and Hall of Fame career as well. Plus, we will return just in a couple of weeks Back to the Stone Cold Chronicles. It's been put on hiatus for WrestleMania Rush during the month of March, but we return, and it, it kind of fits because where we left off, Stone Cold Steve Austin left the World Wrestling Federation after neglecting and denying the opportunity to put over Brock Lesnar in a random match on Monday Night Raw. He vanished from professional wrestling, so he kind of vanished from beyond the bell for a point. But we return covering the year 2003 as Stone Cold Steve Austin would return to the mainstream of professional wrestling and that means the World Wrestling Federation the WWE and back into Vince McMahon's loving arms maybe it wasn't so loving as we'd expect but Stone Cold returns in the year 2003 what would be his role now with the company after leaving so abruptly and with such controversy. We cover 2003 of the Stone Cold Chronicles. The Horseman Files continues on. Probably the longest running series in Beyond the Bell history. It's been going over two, three years now. And I've been spacing it out to cover the Horseman history in a true retrospective and thorough manner. And we cover the year 1993 
in our Horseman Files series. A decade apart from Stone Cold Steve Austin returning to the mainstream of professional wrestling and the WWF, to 10 years prior, like I mentioned, a decade apart, to 93 as the Horsemen were entering a very transitional point in their illustrious history as Ric Flair would leave to go to the World Wrestling Federation. What would the future hold for the Horsemen? Could they rebound? Could Ric Flair, if Ric Flair would come back, which we all knew he would, when he returned to WCW, what would the future be for the Four Horsemen? We cover all that in the 93 edition. Plus, the big announcement as we wrap things up here tonight is that you fans have asked for it, and we will give it to you. I promised you, throughout the month of June, that's my birthday month, I decided to give back to you fans. As a result, we will present your fan picks, the episodes, the shows that you wanted to hear, you wanted to be covered on Beyond the Bell, and I'll be releasing that content and what you'll be hearing over the next few weeks during the summertime in June on BTB. I can give you a hint right now, one of which will involve the music and memories, the memorable moments of extreme championship wrestling. Yes, we closed the book on ECW 101, but that doesn't mean it's over talking about the land of the extreme. We cover ECW's greatest hits in music and greatest hits in moments, barbed wire, steel chairs, and boom boxes, the music of ECW and some of the greatest moments in which you can check out on the WWE Network as well as on YouTube Daily Motion. We'll also discuss some statistics from ECW as well as some key matches that you can go back and relive. You fans asked for it, I will bring it to you. As well as I compiled a three-part series. Again, WCCW is not over. You guys wanted more world-class championship wrestling? You got it. I compiled a three-part series series a three-part special but we'll split it up of course over the next few months but part one will debut for you fans your fan choices kind of fitting the ecw style i'll be answering your questions that you've had about world-class championship wrestling the most common questions the most unique and interesting questions that i think will round out our world-class series all mixed together with some of the classic world-class championship wrestling entrance themes or music videos played on broadcasts Due to copyright issues and licensing fees, we don't really get to get the true essence of WCCW on the network as it's dubbed over as due to those issues like I just mentioned. As a result, I thought it'd be great to hear the actual music played during that era of world-class championship wrestling. So questions mixed in with music for that special on WCCW. All this coming up over the next few weeks, including... Our brand new 101 series, You Fans Asked For It. We closed the book on ECW, we covered WCW, and now we're going to relive the AWA, the American Wrestling Association, hailing from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Vern Gagne's company covered on Beyond the Bell. So get ready, AWA 101, upcoming on BTB. Connect socially, guys, to Beyond the Bell at BTBCast on Twitter, BTBCast on Facebook, ringannouncing.com, BTBCast.com, and the SNSRadioNetwork.com. So fans, enough of my blabbering and jabbering. We'll wrap it up for this special 
sexy and cool addition as we were running on diesel power. Kevin Ash, part one in the books. We cover the rest of the Hall of Fame class over the next couple of weeks. Nash and Savage on Beyond the Bell. We'll wrap it up. We'll take it home. Our old school music. The theme of the week. Of course, it's Kevin Ash. My, one of my favorite songs during the New Generation era was Kevin Ash's or Diesel's second theme in the Federation. His first Diesel theme was just a motor running for a truck, but his second theme was a motor running into that classic blues, hard rock kind of tune entitled Diesel Blues. If you recall, it was from the WWF Full Metal, the album. And it's been played and replayed, re-released, remastered, I believe. And it was, I remember, another popular track on the WWF Anthology album, that three-disc set, that classic entrance theme set. But now things have all changed with iTunes, where you can set singles out, which I love now. Couldn't wait for themes to debut and be released. And now we enjoy it on a common basis via iTunes, or as well as on YouTube, other sites as well. But we'll take it home with some Diesel Blues, a great song that summarizes this great era for Kevin Ash as he was WWF Heavyweight Champion. Until next week, this is your party host, your old school ring announcer, Sean Beckerman, signing off. As always, stay old school, my retro friends. Oh.